Hello and welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast. The following sermon was preached by me, Peter Bell, at All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church, part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America denomination. You can find All Saints RPC at 331 North Berry Street, Brea, California 92821, which is also linked in the show notes. Our worship service is at 10 a.m., followed by a catechism class at 11.45 a.m. May the Lord bless you through this sermon. So imagine with me, you grew up in the first decade of the 1900s. Before the invention of just about anything you've got in front of you or on you or basically anywhere. You're six or seven years old, so you kids, six or seven years old. When birthdays, as you know, they're a really big deal. They're kind of a less deal as you get older. You're like, oh, it's my birthday. Somebody calls you, you're like, that was nice. But if you don't get a present, you're like, whatever. And kids are like, where's my presents? I need my presents. And all you can think about, the entirety of your existence revolves around, and some of, this, some of you, this actually might be true, and you might have one. You have an obsession with horses. You want nothing more than to ride in your very own carriage, maybe even with your parents, carried along by a majestic and powerful horse. Your birthday comes, and you are too giddy to know what to do with it. It's been consuming your mind because your parents keep dropping hints like this. They say, you'll be able to ride it. You're like, I can't wait. Everything in me is bursting. However, your birthday arrives, you walk outside, and what do you see? No carriage. You don't see a horse. And you're thinking, what gives? All you see is the world's first gas-powered vehicle. And you think, that's not what I wanted. I wanted a horse. I wanted to travel by horse and by carriage. Your parents are like, you can go a lot farther and faster in a car than you can by a horse. And you see the prophets of the Old Testament, they're constantly proclaiming of a coming redeemer. They're saying, just wait, he's coming, he's coming. The messianic king who would come and deliver us, deliver you from the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil, but he's not what you expected. That's because he's better. It's like a gas-powered vehicle versus a horse and carriage. You're like, but I want a horse and carriage. And God's like, I got you a car. That's, why don't you want a car? It's, it's why the priests miss him. And we'll see this in the first part of John. It's why, it's why they miss him. They're expecting, they're expecting a type. They're not expecting the fulfillments. Essentially, everyone who studied the scripture missed him because he's better. They're expecting a shadow when the thing appeared. And John begins his gospel by, by setting up, as you heard last week, the drama of all dramas. The biggest story known to mankind. The most dynamic story you've ever read because, first, it's true. And, and two, it involves you. Because every other story you read, 
you have to like kind of insert yourself into the, to the drama, insert yourself into the novel. And this one actually tells you you're part of this. So we dive here into a part of that story, essentially, is John's kind of building out on that little phrase you saw in John 1, he came into the world, but the world did not know him. And so we get a little picture of what that is. And we'll see this in three points. Point one, the world doesn't know him, verses 19 through 28. If you think about it, who should recognize him? Of anybody anybody on the planet who should recognize him, the priests and the Levites, they should know exactly what he looks like. But they miss him. Point two is those those who are called know him. John doesn't ask a question. He says, Christ, who are you? He says, you are the son of God. You are the lamb of God. And then he calls others to follow and the last point is, do you know him? Verses 41 to 51. So the question we must ask at the end, and Jesus invites you at the end, is do you know me? Not, not just me. Do you know me as the king? Do you know me as the messianic ruler who's come from heaven to save you? And I pray that this is clear throughout. You have been called by Christ that you might know him as your king. We're going to start with point one. In verse 19. Because verses 19 to 23, they set up this scene. Because John's confession is he's not lying, and he's, he's building up his prophetic case. I'm the, I'm the prophet bringing, although he denies he's a prophet in the professional sense, kind of like what Amos does. I'm not a professional prophet. I'm not paid by them to do what they want me to do. I'm a prophet who comes from God. It begins with his interaction with those sent by the Pharisees. Because you see, this, this scene, these four or five verses, this should shock you. If you've read your Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament really, really well, this should shock you. Of anyone alive at this time, again, this is about 80, 30, who do you think, or who should, be most likely to recognize the Messiah? Of anybody on the planet. Who should recognize him? The priests. Because what do they do all day, every day? Minister in his temple. They know the law by heart. And they're supposed to administer the law. They're supposed to work sacrifices to the law. So who is John confronted by here? Who is the first people? Priests sent by the Jews and the Levites. And John's answer to the question is, I'm not the Christ. Which probably means that's who they're asking for. They're like, we're not really sure who it is. You kind of look like him, maybe. Who are you? And that's when he says, I'm not, I'm not the Christ. And look at the list of people they ask about next. They ask about Elijah, the prophets. And the last question is, we have no idea, just tell us. We're not really sure. Elijah is the, the paradigmatic prophet. If you know First and Second Kings, he's, he's rather prominent in First and Second Kings. And he does a lot of stuff that Jesus ends up doing. Which is why on the cross, when Jesus pr- uh, proclaims, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do they think he's talking to? They think he's talking to Elijah. So that's, that's kind of the, the mind right now. That's kind of who they're expecting. 
And John is the only gospel accounts not to include the transfiguration. All the three, the synoptic gospels, they include it. And so he's probably involving Elijah here to, to kind of counterbalance this, include him in this. If you're not Elijah, John, that the priests are asking, then are you at least a prophet? Because then we might listen to you, or probably not, because if we're anything like Israel in the Old Testament, we don't listen to prophets. But Elijah's no prophets, or, but John is no prophets. Why are they so intense on the identity of John? John returns, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which is quoting Isaiah 40. If you read a little bit more into Isaiah 40, in context, a few verses after this, after what John quotes, it says, and the glory, I think this is verse 5 of Isaiah 40, and the quote is Isaiah 40, verse 3. This quote goes on to say, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and the people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So he's, John, by, by quoting Psalm 4, by quoting Isaiah 40, he's like, the glory of the Lord is coming. He has appeared, he's revealed, and I'm preparing the way for him. So John actually says, in this quote, he actually says precisely who he is, precisely what he's doing. And that he's speaking of the Lord in the flesh, which we saw or we heard in John 1. But did they catch it? They completely miss it. In verse 24 to 28, it bears this out. Your translation might have in parentheses like the ESV does. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, which is a marker by John, because he doesn't have to say this. He could have just said the priests and the Levites, and he would probably have gotten his point across. But he says their sense... Because a few, a, few, a few verses after this, in verse 33 or 34, it's the sent one of God you'll hear from. So he, he compares these, the sent ones of Pharisees and the sent one from God. They're two very sent ones, two very different sent ones. And so utterly confused, the Pharisees, missing John's answer that I'm telling you that I know who the Messiah is. Because they ask him, like, are you it? And he's like, I know who it is. Just ask me. Ask me who the Messiah is, and I'll tell you. And they don't, they don't ask him. And they continue in verse 25. They're effectively saying, we have no clue who we're looking for. We're, we're blind to the coming of the Messiah. Just tell us. Who are these people? They're temple officials. They have the Torah memorized down flat. It's not like they need help with the Bible. They're just, they're blind. They have no idea. They who are working in the earthly temple have no idea who John 1.14 is, the one who tabernacled among us, the one who templed among us. They work in the temple like we don't know who the temple is, even though I work in it. It's interesting, though, because they do expect baptizing. If there's anything they know, it's like, you're going to baptize. They're like, of all things, that's the thing you think of, not the Messiah. But they miss the instruments 
of baptism. John is baptizing with water, which they probably know because they probably think of water as purifying. That's, that's what priests use to bathe, wash their clothes in, wash their hands in when they will enter into the temple. So they know water pretty darn well. This is purifying. That's what purifies mean to enter into the temple. And it's explicit here at the end of verse 26 because there's one among you who you don't know. So he just says, like, your questions betray that you don't know him. And John cannot tie his sandal straps, which usually people don't know where that comes from. That's Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5, 27 talks about the sandal straps that will not be broken of he who will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily that come. Or quickly, speedily they come. That's a previous verse. So Isaiah 5.27 is a sandal strap that won't be broken. Isaiah 5.26 is he who comes as a signal. And so John's saying, I can't untie it because he's that guy. That's the guy who's coming. So let me remind you, their blindness to the Lord Jesus Christ was not a lack of knowledge. That was not their problem. It wasn't they weren't reading enough or voluminous enough, or they, I mean, they, they had fireside chats or temple-side chats, but who do you think the Messiah is going to be? They had plenty of those. They knew their Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They knew it better than you will ever know it. So they learned it, memorized it in Hebrew, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, down flat, probably by the age of 10. So they know the, they know the Bible better than you better than me. They were so blinded, though, by their preconceived notions of who the Messiah to come would be. That's their problem. They're blind. They have no idea. Because they, you've probably heard, they, they're, they're probably, although there's some variation in this, the, the dominant one is they're expecting some form of conquering king. That, that changes kind of group to group, but that's probably who the Pharisees were looking for. And they're looking for this, this conquering king who would lead them out from the tyranny of the Roman government. That's, that's who they're expecting. And so when they see Jesus, they're like, no, that's not him. They completely miss humility. Doesn't come in power, or I guess perceived power, doesn't come in pomp. He comes in humility, and so they miss him. So they're steeped in scriptures. They know the scriptures better than anybody else before them, after them. It's, it's, it is no contest. So it's not knowledge. I think it's more it's blindness and assumptions. They, they don't know because they can't know, and they assume. It was their desires of what they wanted to come. This is the Messiah I want. You don't look like the Messiah I want. Therefore, I don't know who you are. So I'll ask you a question. Is Christ, or is the Christ the Messiah you may have formed in your mind, is that who you're looking for? Or is the one who has come, who's revealed to us? Because those can be two very different people. We have to ask ourselves this question. 
And those who don't or should know Jesus, they don't. And we see a very vivid example of these priests and these Levites. But those whom Jesus calls recognize him instantly. Notice, nobody asks a question. They're just like, you're him. They don't have to like barter and say like, okay, well, what do you say about this passage or what about this passage? They're like, you're the son of God. It provides a stark contrast with the temple priests and Levites. So it brings us to point two, those called know him. And what a contrast is presented to you in these following verses. Look what John says. When Jesus approaches him, they say, who are you? What, like, what should I say about you? Prove yourself to me. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaims, that's who you are. He doesn't need to ask questions. It's not a process of elimination. Okay, let's think of prophet, Elijah, king, all these things. Let's narrow it down. Let's figure this stuff out together. He instantly recognizes him. He even repeats what he said just a few verses earlier. After me comes a man. And verse 31 could be really confusing because he says, I don't know him. But he says, I myself don't know him. So this, this knowledge doesn't come from within John. He doesn't kind of recognize in himself, in his bones, in his heart. But he says, I myself do not know him because you can kind of make that extrapolation. He revealed himself to me. This is not my knowledge. It's not me building out my power. This is him revealing himself to me. And in verse 32, he shortens the account of Jesus' baptism because Jesus' baptism doesn't occur in the book of John. But it's shortened here. Notice how verse 33 describes John. I myself did not know him, and then he uses this, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's directly contrasting himself with the priests and Levites. Those sent by the Pharisees, me sent by God. Two very different groups of people. John the Baptist is set up as the opposite of those sent by the Pharisees. It's two different accounts of do you recognize Jesus? And more importantly, Jesus fulfills the prophecy, because this quote is taken from Isaiah 42, describing the anointing of the true servant. He says, he, he who you see the Spirit come down on, that's the servant of the Lord. Because what do other prophets have to do? We talked about with Amos. They have to go up to receive the Spirit's. This spirit comes down on the Messiah. And he will bring justice to the nations and cause righteousness and justice to flow in the land. And further in Isaiah 42, a few verses after this quote, the servant of the Lord is prophesied or prophesied to heal the sick, which is what Jesus does, release the prisoners, tends to be exorcism with Jesus, and he causes the blind to see. Also, Isaiah 35 predicts this and prophecies this. So him quoting this is not just a quote, but he's saying, this is the servant of the Lord. This is the one you're looking for. And yes, John baptizes with water, continuing the purifying ritual the priest took part of. That's, that's 
probably what's being, that's probably first and foremost in their mind. This is purifying. Remember, kind of outside purification, temporary purification that the priests have to do over and over and over again. They have to wash themselves with water over and over. There's little, little vats of water around the temple to make sure that you're clean. But it's not a one-time thing. They have to do this every day, every week, every year. But Jesus comes with the Holy Spirit. That is once that carries on every day, every year, every week. And it's also, he's foreshadowing his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Because Jesus says this to Nicodemus. That you got to be born of the Spirit if you want to see the, the kingdom of God. Because this is not a ritualistic over and over. You have to purify yourself. The Holy Spirit comes and purifies you. Baptism with water, you can think about it really visually, viscerally, is temporary. You get temporary entrance into the temple. Temporary entrance into the kingdom. Baptism with the Spirit enters you. Not something you do, but it, it ushers you and it brings you in and says, you will never depart. You're always in the temple. In the next scene of this section, verses 35 to 40, John then goes and gets his disciples. He does what he says he'll do. I provide the testimony. So now what does he do? Provides the testimony. Tells disciples. In verse 36, he repeats, you're the Lamb of God. And I failed to mention earlier, if you know the book of Exodus well, if you've read it, Lamb of God should spark something in your mind. Meaning the story of the Passover. Before the Israelites were freed from Egyptian bondage in the book of Exodus, they took a spotless lamb, a year old, and slaughtered it. Because the spirit doesn't just pass over and says, oh, they're good. That lamb they slaughtered was in place of their firstborn son. So it's not like nothing, had to, nothing didn't have to die in that house. No, a lamb had to die. So their firstborn son didn't have to die. It's their sacrifice instead of their firstborn son. And a lot is packed into here. We won't get into, but it's why he calls him the Lamb of God. And notice what happens in verse 37. Because of John's testimony, behold, the Lamb of God, his disciples follow him. John's doing exactly what he said he would do. My testimony is going to bear forth this fruit. And what both the Jewish priests and Levites sent by Pharisees, they should have done. Hearing about Jesus, they should tell others, but they just don't know, and they leave. John hears, knows, and starts proclaiming. I won't make a ton out of this, but I do think this is instructive for us, this little episode here. John's following his two disciples, small, but he's still got more of a following than any of us have. They're stripped. He's got no more disciples after this because he recognized who the Messiah was. Unlike the elites of this day, because what do the Pharisees, the temple priests, always say around Jesus? He's going to take people from us. People are going to follow him. And John's like, Yes, please. Leave me, because I'm not the Messiah. Follow him. I'm going to provide the testimony for him. 
It almost seems, which is, which is what John wants, John wants his disciples to go away. Stop following me. Go follow the Messiah. It's not the main point here, but it's, it's worth asking. If it means losing whatever you might think you have, would you gleefully point to Jesus? Say, he's the Messiah, I will lose everything. It's a really hard question to answer. And John's disciples cleave to Jesus and ask him where he's staying, probably because they expect him, because they don't have a full orb picture of Jesus. They know who he is, to be sure, but they're not, their theology is definitely not perfect yet. They just learned who this guy was. So they kind of expect him to be like a regular rabbi. They know he's the son of God, but they're like, you're a rabbi too. And students live with their teacher for about three years, learning the Torah, learning Hebrew, learning all these prophecies. So it's, it's, it's kind of part of their expectation. A little comment ends this section in verse 40. From one of the disciples, one of the two disciples of John who followed Jesus was Andrew, the brother of Peter, which is actually what my brother's name is, Andrew. So in direct contrast to the religious authorities of the day who should recognize him, who have the Bible better memorized, better learned, better everything than you will ever have, miss him. And John and his disciples recognize him. If you're not a priest or a Levite, you don't have the Bible memorized. Priest Levite assumes you have the Bible memorized. So it's not for a lack or more knowledge. It's for this renewal. So they do recognize him. Now the question is, which our last point is, do you recognize him? Do you know him? And what does Andrew do in verse 41? He calls for his brother, Simon Peter, whom you were just told of in the previous verse. He knows who this person is, who he is following. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So when John tells the disciples, what do his disciples do? Tell other people, follow this guy. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. And what does Jesus do in verse 42? He names him. Now, it may be easy for us to, to pass by this, but recall how Christ the Word is described in John 1, beginning of John 1. All things were created through Jesus the Word. So when Yahweh in Genesis 1 says, Let there be, does the creation negotiate with Jesus and say, Well, let's think about this. Do I really want to be created? How long? How short? When do you want to do this? They just, okay, we're done. Like, we're going to be created. They don't have, it's not a negotiation. When he says something, it happens. Some of you parents are like, I, I wish that happened with my kids. Jesus here does the same thing. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Which if you think about Jewish law then, that's not Jesus' prerogative to do. That's the parents. This is your name. And so now the disciples are brought forth to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He starts naming them. If you know Genesis 1 really well, your mind starts tracking with this. 
we'll see this too. The same occurs in verses 43 to 44. Jesus goes out to Galilee, finds Philip, and says, follow me. And Philip does. It's, it's really is. It's, it's Jesus' naming and claiming. He's, he's starting to take dominion. Starting to do Adam things. When the Lord says, hey, Adam, name these animals, Adam starts naming them. When Jesus has brought these disciples, what does he start doing? They start following, he starts naming them. And so you start to see parallels to the Lord and Adam in the creation story, which gets really clear at the end of John 1. And what the Jewish priests and Levites sent by the Pharisees should have recognized in verse 45, Philip instantly sees. He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law, which is what the priests are supposed to do. They're supposed to mediate the law, make the sacrifices of the law. And then Philip says, that's the one they pointed to. And also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Exactly what the priest is supposed to do, Philip recognizes. That's who the, Mo that's who the law of Moses pointed to. All the scriptures point to the Messiah. Philip gets it. And yet, a perplexing statement on the surface from Nathaniel. He asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you've driven through L.A., you know the worst parts of L.A. That's probably not unlike how they thought of Nazareth. That's the dumps of Judah. That's the dumps of Galilee. That's the dumps of this region. How can anything good come out of here? the conquering king, the son of God, the Messiah promised of old coming from Nazareth. It's like coming from the worst of skid row in L.A. Some, some, some homeless guy walking up to you is like, I'm the son of God. And you're like, let's think about this real quick, which probably happened to you before. But that's what he's saying. It's, I come from the worst place. I don't come from the king's area. I don't come from the temple complex. I don't come from the high and mighty I come from the low. However, on a deeper level, Nazareth is also prophetic fulfillment. Nezer, which is, which is the roots of the, of the Greek word, it's, it's taken from Hebrew, but roots is Nezer. It's used in, in Isaiah 11, 1, 14, 19, 16, 21, and Daniel 11, 7, all referring, Nezer in Hebrew means shoot coming forth from. It's the shoot of David. Nezer is using all four of these passages for the shoot of David. The Nezer of David. So when he calls Nazareth, it plays on two levels. It's both the place Jesus actually comes from, the lowliest place, but it's also your David's. You came from David. The king of Israel came from the fields of sheep in 1 Samuel 16. Was David the king they expected? Was he the tallest, mightiest? He's got the pedigree. Basically, when, when he passes all other sons and he goes to David, they're like, really? That's the one you chose? That's the king you want us to have? It's, it's not unlike Nathaniel's question here. Really? From Nazareth? From that place of dumps? Are kings going to come from there? 
is, is almost like asking, literally the Lord, but like asking the Lord, are you sure this is the one who's going to save us? Jesus, the shoot of David, is, is seen in much the same way by Nathaniel. That's not the place I expected the Messiah to come from. Not the dumps. I kind of expected him to be brought as a little baby from the, from the throne. It'd be really clear to me. And remarkably, in verses 47 to 49, Jesus says, you're right. You're not, you're not deceiving yourself. You're not deceiving me. Because we, we think it's demeaning, but it's, it's actually fulfillment. We think Nathaniel's kind of slapping him across the cheek and is like, can anything come from here? And Jesus is like, exactly. Precisely. He responds, Jesus does, by proclaiming that in this Israelite, Nathaniel, that's, that's, a, that's a Hebrew name, it's not a Greek name, nor a Gentile name. Nathan El is Yahweh gives. No deceit is found. He's saying, you're right. You nailed it. And he alludes to Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then where this quote comes from, blessed is man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity and whose spirits there is no deceit. So he takes that and says, you found me. It's talking about me. It's like Jesus here is pronouncing the forgiveness of sin. Nathan, you know who I am? Your sin's forgiven. For Nathaniel has no deceit when he knows Jesus. And Jesus saw him under the fig tree, and Nathaniel in verse 49 responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And so he recognizes the king. Whether he has all kind of the ins and outs laced, we don't know. He might expect still kind of a conquering king, because that was rather pervasive at this time. But he still recognizes the son of God. And lastly, Jesus sums up these interactions with the most highly charged claim to his messianic office in verses 50 to 51. He says, you thought that was cool? Just you wait until some of the stuff we have cooked up. Literally, not just like bigger, better stuff. It's, this is chapter one. We got 20 more chapters of my miracles, of my science pointing to me. And he says... Truly, truly, which that's what a Roman emperor says. If you look through Caesar's dialogues, if you look through all, anybody who's a king or an emperor in first century Judea, in Rome, they start off their statements with truly, truly, or something similar to this. That's what Jesus is doing. Better listen to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so he puts together two prophecies. He adds Jacob's dream of the ladder in Genesis 28 to the Son of Man coming from Daniel 7. Kind of squishes those two together. And he says, both of those point to me. And we'll conclude with this because Jesus tells you, yes, I am the true king. But I'm the eschatological, which is a fancy way of saying I'm, I'm the end of all things king. I'm the true king of Israel. 
I'm here to take dominion over what Adam failed to do. I'm here to take dominion over what you failed to do. I'm here to pursue and set up my kingdom, which you think is going to happen here, but it's really in heaven. I'm going to show you peaks of it here. That you might one day enter to my heavenly kingdom. Says, don't stop here. Don't stop on this earth. Says, look up. So, one with, do you know Jesus? That's that's the big question that John one asks. Do you know him? It's not lack of knowledge. It's not more knowledge. It's do you know him? Either you are those like those of the priests of the Jews and Levites who kind of come in with Christ with a preconceived notion. This is who I want the Messiah to be. And if you don't match my picture of the Messiah, then I don't know if we can work together. Or you flat out don't want a Messiah. You're like, I'm a good enough Messiah or king on my own. I'm a king of my own life. I can do this on my own. Or you like disciples of Jesus called into his eternal kingdom. Jesus, the fulfillment of law and prophets in flesh to bring you into communion with the triune God, because that's John 1, 1 through 18. The God who created all things, spoke through his word. Are you called by him? Do you believe him? So I ask you, confess, like Nathaniel and Philip, come to him like Andrew and Peter, that you might enter his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have called us into your kingdom. You have caused us to confess your name. Lord, this is not a kingdom where we have to continually wash ourselves off, wipe ourselves up after we dirty ourselves with our sin or the sins of others. Lord, this is the kingdom that you have built and that you have built that we might dwell in it. Lord, that we will not have any guile against our account, no sin against our accounts. Lord, all we do is confess your name, have our sins forgiven, righteousness imputed to us because of your son, and we know him, and he knows us. Lord, may, may we know him better and better because you already know us perfectly. May we know what that is like from here to eternity. Lord, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.